We are in, as you know, Psalm 57. It's a short three-week series in the Psalms. Why the Psalms? Like I said last week, uh, we, we had three standalone weeks that were empty. We just finished a series and the Life Together series that we all preach is the Sojourn Churches. Um, and then we're moving into Advent where we're going to be in Isaiah, which I'm really excited about. So I just had the choice to pick three sermons and I thought, what's better than the Psalms? And this Psalm this week, I'm, I'm honestly just reading through the whole Psalter, all 150 Psalms. That's what Psalter means, the whole, the whole collection this month. And I happen to be I was in about 10 Psalms this week, or more than that, actually. But I picked Psalm 57, just came across it and was praying. And it's honestly an unremarkable Psalm as far as it goes. And I say that for a couple reasons. One, you'll probably never, you probably never heard Psalm 57 preached on. You probably won't ever hear it preached on again. But it's God's word, and it's perfect, and it's necessary because it's in here. It's between these two covers, between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. And so it's necessary for us. It's good for us. And so we just get to mine it, and I get to proclaim it, and we get to sit here for a little bit to see what God has for us. And really, this is a psalm about the power of praise. Um, this is a psalm about the power of praise. So let's dive in together. Um, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is, was one of the outstanding, maybe the outstanding British preacher of the 20th century. He's a Welshman and a medical doctor that God called out of medicine to preach his gospel in London. He was a Welshman, but he was in London for the middle half of the 20th century. He said, the world outside is not going to pay attention to all the organized efforts of the Christian church. The one thing she will pay attention to is a body filled with the Spirit and rejoicing. That is how Christianity conquered the ancient world. And I just want to hone in on that phrase. She will pay attention to a body filled with His Spirit and rejoicing. That word rejoicing it is, that is our power. As the Spirit fills us, as the Lord puts us in this broken and hard world, broken people that we are, um, as he puts us in situations where in our flesh we will want to grumble and complain. He puts us in a place where instead of grumbling and complaining, like Catherine said, and that we have so many examples that pepper my, uh, my sermon today among our own people, um, and in the scriptures, but instead of grumbling and complaining, we remember the gospel, we remember what God has done for us, who he is and who we are in light of that, and instead of re- grumbling and complaining, we rejoice. Our power is in, is in this kind of rejoicing. Um, and so that's what we see here in this psalm, if, if, if nothing else, and we see lots, lots more besides. But the first, the first point I wanna start on is just, like I said last week, it's where David begins most of his psalms, because this is where David was for so much of his life, is um, in trouble, so the first, I couldn't resist the first point, titling it something silly, literally just choosing, choosing lines in which David is in trouble throughout this psalm, destruction, lions, and beasts, oh my. Um, you see it in verse one, verse four, verse six, all these things mentioned. He's surrounded by trouble. So and a more sort of compelling point would be in this life, we will have lots of trouble. In this life right now, in a congregation this size, small as we are, we have all sorts of varieties of trouble. Each one of you right now is in a different type of trouble right now as we speak in your life. And David certainly uh, had plenty of trouble. And so he starts off this, uh, this psalm just crying out to the Lord. He's in trouble again. This time, it, we don't even get to um, verse one. We find it in the title. What's, what's happening in the title? What does the title tell us about? It says that David is fleeing from Saul. He's fleeing for his life from Saul. 
Um, that's not completely true, and I'll get to that in a second. He's actually got the upper hand in this case. We go back to um, the historical books and can see that. But he was fleeing from Saul, who was running after David and trying to kill him. He was always in trouble. Um, before being anointed king, he was fighting off lions and bears, uh, beasts that could have easily killed him. Uh, between being anointed king and becoming king, he literally fought a giant, a dude that was about nine feet tall, um, Goliath of Gath. He fought battles after that incessantly. In fact, there was a ditty that the, the, the women of the town uh, made up. They said, Saul has killed his thousands and David his 10,000. So David was a warrior. He was literally killing people with his sword, um, with his men surrounding him. He was embattled. And, uh, and also in between the time where God said, you will be king, and the time when he actually became king, he was on the run for his life for a solid decade, running from the, the man who was jealous and wanted, David, and wanted to guard his own kingship from David, Saul, he would literally, David would be playing the harp and Saul would literally throw a spear and try to pin David against the wall as David is trying to soothe Saul with his harp. It's bizarre, but this is what jealousy does. So David's running for his life. Um, and in this instance, he's in a cave and he sees Saul and he's running, he's running still. And we'll dig into that a little bit more in a second. Um, and we saw even when he becomes king, he creates all sorts of trouble for himself. He's fighting battles. Then when he has peace, he really gets into trouble of his own making. Um, and we saw last week, I said last week, that the first psalm that we know in the Psalter that's from David, Psalm 3. Psalm 1 and 2, we're not sure. There are no titles. They're the opening to the whole Psalter. Psalm 3, we know is from David. And then they continue to be from David for a while. And it's about David running for his life from his own son. Not even from not even from a jealous king, from his own, his own son's trying to kill him. So this dude knows, this dude knows about trouble. Um, and this is where his best song seems to come, seem to come from, from this place of trouble, which often leads us to desperation. Um, and I wonder, I wonder why it is the fact that most of our best and richest songs seem to come from this place. Of trouble. It reminds me of a, a song by one of my favorite artists, David Wilcox. He says, and we, pre- and we pretend to know the reasons. All right, I stop right there. I shouldn't have even sung that. And we pretend to know the reasons that all the roots grow deeper when it's dry, right? And this is just the fact here. Um, in verse one, David mentions the storms of destruction, part of uh, the title of this first point here, that passing overhead. In verse three, it's people trampling on him. Um, the enemies throw a net in front of him to trip him up in verse six, and they even dig a pit for him to fall into. Verse four may be the worst though. He says, and I quote, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Um, it's not bad enough that he's literally on the run for his life and people are trying to kill him, but they're also bad mouthing him. And uh, whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me was a fool. We all know that it's words that can hurt the worst oftentimes. And so David has folks that he thought he trusted bad-mouthing him, speaking ill of him, as well as literally being on the run for his life. And he's not unaffected. So where am I driving with this? What's the point of this sermon? What's the point of this song? The point of this song is that our power is in praise, but David doesn't start there. It's not like he's just strumming his harp in a uh, a nice place in life. He's surrounded by beasts. He's being, he's being assailed from within and without. And in, um, he's not unaffected in verse, and he's also not someone who doesn't notice these things, as I've just read, and as Sarah's just read. He's not in denial. He's not an Enneagram 7. He, maybe he was, right? 
but he's not Enneagram sevening this thing where he's just pushing down all the realities around him and ignoring them. Not at all. What does he say in verse six? He says, my soul was bowed down. Um, in the Hebrew, the soul just means the life or the totality of the person. David is not saying I'm bowed down, but my full being is bent down. I'm so emotionally and intellectually and spiritually and physically weighed down and depressed that I'm almost in the grave. I'm, I'm inches away from being killed by this thing. Um, and yet, and yet, um, let me just pivot and then we're gonna move into point two into how David in the midst of this praises God. We don't have to be able to relate to David's cataclysmic troubles to relate to this psalm. Like I said, um, sometimes, so we're all in, a, in, a, in trouble in a sense. Some of us, all of us in different ways, some of us in more obvious ways, but the cataclysm, it doesn't have to be a cataclysmic trouble to take our eyes off of God. Um, it just takes one sideways glance. One green-eyed monster. One glance of envy. One glance of I have everything except for that thing. One burr in the saddle. And there's always a burr in the saddle. The serpent knew this. The serpent knew this was the case. And so he, uh, he threw in front of Eve the one thing that she was not to uh, go after and not to eat. Um, and she was given the whole rest of creation to enjoy. And Satan went after, the serpent went after the one thing. He just said, if I can just take her eyes off of her maker and her refuge and the satisfaction of her soul and get it on something that she can't have, then literally the world will fall apart. And that's what happened. Um, when we're in trouble, which is most of the time in this life, the last thing that we do, as I said, the last thing that we wanna do, rather, is to praise. The flesh fights against it, and so does the enemy. And again, here is why. Because he knows what David shows us, which is what ultimately, and this is where I'm driving, of course, the, the greater David shows us consummately, which is that, that our power is in praise. That's what I want you to get um, these, last, these few minutes that we have together. Our power is in praise. So David doesn't rely on his strength or prowess. We see that in the title. I told you I'd come back to this, the context of this psalm. Um, David, if we go back to 1 Samuel 24, don't now, but that's the context for this psalm right here. It's how he pins this thing. He finds himself in a cave hiding from the lunatic king Saul trying to kill him and literally Saul comes into the cave by himself, puts his weapon in the ground and goes into a corner to use the restroom, completely unprotected. And David is right there with all his dudes, just, just armed to the teeth. And they're like, God has given this man into your hands. And what does David do? He spares him. Because this is God's anointed. God has a plan for my life and God's gonna take care of things. He knows that his power is not taking matters into his own hands. It's not grumbling or complaining. It's laying out his stuff before God and then it lifts him to a place of praise. And it puts him exactly where God wants him to be and it creates a power that flows through him. This, this power through praise is ours as well. So, so that's it. Um, in this life, we'll have trouble. David certainly did, but he doesn't stay there. Point two, in the midst of the troubles of this life, David lifts his gaze to God and he hides in him and he praises him. You'll notice throughout this psalm, it starts in trouble, but throughout this psalm, it's punctuated, it's laced with God just, with, excuse me, with David praising the Lord. Verses three, verse five, verses 10 and 11. 
And, uh, and so I just want to pull a few points from this. First of all, let David let God fight for him. Like I just said, he doesn't lash out and kill Saul. He could have easily. He doesn't do that. He runs to God to protect and provide for him instead, calling God his refuge. And we'll get into that in a second. Um, he doesn't fight for himself or defend himself. Verse two, rather he says, I will call upon the most high God, the God who maintains my cause. That's the revised standard version. I usually go ESV. Um, more of this in verse three, David trusts God will fight for him and defend him. And then let me just jump, don't turn there, but Psalm 71, 10 and following, David says this as well. He says, for my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him, pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. Oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. See how he's calling out to God instead of trying to take matters into his own hands? May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered. He prays ferociously. He knows that he can do that with God. Um, but I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts. See how he moves to praise? Of your de- he's unloaded his burden and now he's praising. Of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. He says the same thing in verses nine and 10 here. I will praise, I will sing your praises. He unloads his cares and then he gets to the place at the end of the psalm where he says, I will sing your praises to everyone that, that is within earshot. And he goes as far as to say to all the nations. Did he make good on his word? Of course he did. We're, I'm living proof. We are the nations sitting here 3,000 years later talking about this psalm that David wrote in the midst of trouble. Okay, um, and how did that happen? Miroslav Volf, who's a Croatian, um, he, was, he was, I don't know if he still is, a professor at Yale. He wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And in the book, he talks about the fact that he saw so much, everything from rapine to genocide and murder, all the most gruesome crimes against humanity as a Croatian in the Balkans. And um, a lot of this stuff was meted out against his family. And he says, the only thing that I've seen that stops the cycle of revenge and taking vengeance into our own hands on those who have truly wronged us is believing in a God of vengeance. Believing in a God, David pours out his heart to a God that he knows is just and will make things right. He doesn't take the matter into his own hands by killing Saul and look how things turn out for him. He believes in a God who is just, and God will take care of those um, who, don't, who don't bow to him and hide in him. And so that is the one thing that stops the cycle of vengeance and revenge in our lives. The other thing is, um, that we see here is invite him in. Um, Jim Cimbala, so invite him in. Jim Cimbala, he came and spoke at a conference. I've mentioned him before. At the end of um, the summer that I went to up north at Woods Edge Church, and he wrote a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, and he talked about, uh, he had a simple talk on um, Jesus' first miracle in, uh, in Cana, which is close to where he grew up in, in Galilee in the hills. Uh, it's recorded in John 2, and Jesus is there, and that's where he makes, he turns the water into wine at a wedding because they run out of wine. And so um, Jim asked this simple question. He, said, he says, um, why was Jesus there? 
Why was Jesus there at the wedding? He had a few of his disciples with him. Why was he there? And it's like, dude, why are you asking me this? But then when you answer it, it opens up this wonderful truth, I think. And the reason that Jesus was there, class, is because he was invited. Now, that's not fair because it's in the text and you're not in the text right now. He was invited to the wedding and he brought, he and his disciples were invited and they came. The reason Jesus was there is that he was invited. And the reason that the party wasn't a complete bust and that in fact, rather, his formal ministry started and, um, and it, it became an amazing thing that testified to who he was is because simply he was invited. And Jim goes on to say, if you want to see uh, Christ at work in your life, invite him in. Invite him into every single area. Like Catherine was saying during her testimony, he's here, but there's something about us living lives of prayer where we're in constant communion with God because of the work of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and our lives become a prayer and God is left out of no thing because there's no square inch of the universe in which Christ does not say, mine. Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. All means not 99.9%, but to invite him into these places in our lives where we are at work, where we're at home, and every place in between. There's nothing he does not care about. Everything becomes worship. Everything becomes you seeing him at work in the midst of these things that would normally frustrate us, all of a sudden, this is God's plan. This is an adventure. What are you gonna do now? Lord, come and manifest yourself in this place. So invite him in. In the midst of trouble, David immediately runs to God. He invites God into this place. Um, he doesn't try to figure things out himself first. He invites him in. Um, I remember on the drive home from that night from the Woodlands, after Jim shared that simple message, my prayer life just exploded. All sorts of joy filled me because all of a sudden, all these things that I think about in my head and I mull over and I tend to be anxious about because I'm trying to figure them out, I started articulating as prayers and I was inviting Christ in and it filled me with such peace and then that relationship becomes so much richer and everything becomes a conversation with the living God who cares about every part of your life. So um, Nathaniel gave testimony last week um, to how it worked. He just invited God in to like to his life. Lord, what, I'm at work here. What do you, what do you want to do for those around me? And then God mentioned right ankle and he was just scratching his head such that he didn't mention. He said right ankle about a guy that Nathaniel just forgot about it because it seemed so random. And then the next week, the guy was hobbling by on crutches and Nathaniel was like, whoa, hey, come back. He walked past his office. He said, what, what happened? He's like, uh, I hurt myself in a cricket match. He's like, which, which leg? My right ankle. Okay. Why don't you come in here for a second? Prayed over the guy. Guy gets healed. Um, and he's that, from that point now open to, was not open to Christ at all. I think Hindu background. Now he's open to the community. He's open to the power of the living God. He's interested in the gospel. I think he may be coming to parish or have already come. And maybe he said, I'm even interested in coming to worship. So amazing. Nathaniel just invited Christ in. The Lord's already there, but we, to invite him in. Um, so, so invite him in. Also, um, I want to say this in looking at a couple metaphors in verse one that David offers us. God is always what we need. God is always what we need. He's both strong and tender. If you notice in verse one, he calls God my refuge. And refuge is a strong stone bulwark or tower. But so he's, God is strong. There's no one stronger. But the, the metaphor develops into something unexpected. Um, it develops into 
I hide in the shadow of your wings. So he says, he says, for in you my soul takes refuge, verse one, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. What's happening? He's not only a strong tower, this God, he's also a bird with, with soft, outstretched wings taking us in and protecting us in a motherly way. God is, is the father from whom all fathers come and from whom all things come, but mothers and fathers come from God. You see, he's not a mother, but all maternal and motherly affection and that desire to protect the children comes from the living God. He's strong, but he's also soft. He's fierce, but he's also full of compassion. The supernova issued from the breath of the mouth of the living God, but so does the petal of the coral-colored rose. The black rhinoceros is God's creation, but so is the monarch butterfly. He is terrible in power, like an army with banners, and far worse, with greater glory. But he's also tender, right? He's tender, like a mother hen gathering her chicks, like a mother with her child, with her nursing child, with her weaned child by her side. So what's the point of all that? Well, it's the same as before. God is always what we need. If you need someone strong to rescue you and to hide in, that's God. He, there's no one better. If you need someone to understand where you are and to be tender and compassionate, that's God. That, he is always who we need. Um, so God is always what we need. Also, David's praise of God becomes a power sort of to get into the main thrust of this thing. It becomes a power that brings God's presence down and changes things. Um, we see this before David to kind of range over the scriptures. We see this in Joshua 6 with the Israelites, the Hebrews, as they are, have been 40 years in the desert and they're about to enter the promised land and they go into the promised land and the first city that God tells them to take is, okay, AI, okay, fair, yeah, AI. What about the one that's uh, in Joshua 6? Good, we have some Bible scholars in here. Um, Jericho and Joshua 6, that's right. The first main big city, big walled city, I should say. AI is kind of a blip and they learn a lesson from AI. But Jericho, as they come to the promised land, promised land, and how do they take Jericho? They walk around it and they praise God. They blow horns. They have a praise and worship session. Literally, he wants you to know, you, it, your strength is not in your strength. It's in your praise. It's in your praise of me because God is enthroned, Psalm 22, 3, which I'll finish with, on the praises of his people. Our power is in our praise of the living God, um, especially when we're in a place where we feel like we need to buck up and we need to take arms. Um, we see this before David in Jericho. We see this after David in Acts 4 with the early church, verse 31 of Acts 4. And when they prayed and after they had pra praised, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And they went out from there, and guess what? The whole ancient Near Eastern rim of the world got changed within a couple hundred years. We see it again in Acts 16 with Paul and Silas. Quote, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. So, so what are Paul and Silas doing? They're chained up in a prison in Philippi, and they are having a praise and worship service at midnight. In those prisons, those ancient prisons, man, they were not pretty. They were nasty. They were places where you were just left to die. Often awaiting execution, sometimes you might be thrown to the lions, have your head chopped off. Often you would just be left to not be fed. And they are having a worship service because that's, it's always the right time to praise God. 
It's Paul to the Philippian church who says at the beginning of chapter three of Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And then in chapter four, verse four, and again I say, rejoice. Okay, and he's writing this letter from prison. So they're having a praise and worship service and what happens? The power of God breaks in as God is enthroned on their praises. Suddenly there was an earthquake so the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And then the gospel just continues to go forth in power. God inhabits the praises of his people, especially when we're tempted to not praise. Just like David is here, just like Paul and Silas, same God, same spirit, same Jesus that we're magnifying. Why do you think, I see Justin smiling over there, taking notes in his Moleskine. Why do you think that he's always listening to praise music all the time? I used to think it was because he had a terribly narrow musical range. It's like, can you please listen to someone else, sir? There is classical, there is jazz, there is all sorts of, there is Caribbean, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff. There are soundtracks. It's like the dude is just a one, uh, a one, one trick pony. Um, I don't think it's because he has narrow musical interests. I think it's because he knows that he is always warring. He is always at war. He is always engaged in battle. There's a reason that, I mean, he knows that when he's going to go in to pray deliverance over someone or to pray healing over someone or to counsel someone or to meet with a Muslim to preach Christ to them or to just be with them, um, and to preach Christ to them by being with them, or to be with someone who's a friend of ours who just came to Christ, who was a Muslim, and to sit down and open the scriptures, or a new believer, or countless other things, or to get on his face to pray for this or that. He is warring, and he knows this truth, and you know this truth, which is that the power of God manifests itself in our praise. This man is warring. Um, When he leads us in worship on Sundays, we are not being entertained. We are not being entertained right now. I'm not preaching to you so that you can, you can uh, grade my sermon. We are prepping for battle. We are putting on our armor. We are getting filled up and stitched up so that we can go back out into the mission field that he's called us into. We are worshiping and battling right now. Um, and God sits enthroned on our praises as we do so. So I told you I'd come back to Lauren Baker a very short version of a story that I'm hoping that they'll later tell for us. But again, she went to the hospital on a routine, what they thought was a routine visit. Her blood pressure spiked. Okay, this is a moment where you have your kid, you have three kids at home, your husband's at work, your blood pressure spikes, and it's like serious, guys. It's very serious. And instead of going, dang it, this is gonna take longer, my life might be on the line, all sorts of things you could grumble, complain about, what does she start doing? She starts praising God by going, oh, Lord, okay, what, what opportunity do you have for me now? Oh, you want me to pray for Julie? I don't know who Julie is. Who's Julie? Anyone? Julie? Oh, Julie is the right-hand person of the doctor. She's the resident, the doctor's resident, and her last day is today. Well, tell Julie, I think that the Lord has healing for her. And then they bring in like a slew of doctors, and she gets psychiatric visits, two of them, because they think she's crazy, because she's talking to God and hearing from God, apparently. But they come in and realize this woman is so full of joy and has something I don't have, and she gets to preach Christ to like the entire medical staff. So this is, she's just, God is inhabiting her praises as she is just in a situation that God has put her in for that day. And it's no different, it's no different with us. We often focus on the thing in our circumstances that we want to change though, don't we? I'm, pre- I'm preaching, guys. I'm, I'm preaching, if I have one finger toward you, I've got four fingers back at me, promise. We often focus on the one thing that we want to see change that we don't have 
rather than focusing on the one we do have, capital O, okay? Who has given himself wholly to us and for us and who can change any circumstance, especially as we praise him. Um, So that sideways glance, that focusing on the one thing we don't have instead of on the one we do have who has given himself for us and to us, it'll just, instead of stilling the enemy in the avenger, it gives him a, it gives him a chance to come and, and to attack and to wreak havoc. Um, often our problem isn't a repentance problem, but a praise problem. It's not that we're doing something wrong. We're so hard on ourselves, guys. It's that we're not doing something. To praise God, to see praising God for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ and for who he is in Christ. This is our work. Um, we're not rejoicing always and praising him in all circumstances, especially the worst ones, like Paul does um, and commands twice from a jail and, uh, to the church at Philippi. Um, the enemy wants us to think being a Christian is a big burden, a list of rules to keep, a list of to-dos, good behavior, but it's not. Why do those, pres- those crazy Presbyterians and Anglicans of old 400 years ago who got together and put something together called the Westminster Confession of Faith, why in the shorter catechism, which was created for children to sort of systematize the truths, the precious truths God's given us in his word. Why does the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, start this way? What is the chief end of man? Class, answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy. Do you see it? And enjoy him forever. C.S. Lewis and then John Piper later grabbed a hold of this, tweaks that a little bit. You gotta, you gotta be brave to tweak those old Anglican divines and those old Presbyterian divines, right? But they did it, and I think it was for the good. Man's chief end, get this, is to glorify God. This is the reason we're made, by enjoying him forever. Enjoying God through who he's revealed himself to be and what he's done for us in the person of Jesus Christ is what we get to do. Um, what is my neighbor's num- what is your neighbor's number one problem? Adultery, workaholism, greed, having too much to drink most nights, being mean or vain? Nope. Your neighbor's number one problem is that he and she is worshiping the wrong thing. It's a worship problem. It's a praise problem. We're made to worship. It's the gas that fuels us. Um, and worship defines and drives us if it's the right fuel in our tank, but if it's not the living God that we worship, it will, it will destroy us. It will destroy us. Um, our praise is powerful, again, because it changes our perspective. And we see that with David, and it invites God into our situation. And it fixes our eyes, not on here or not on out here what I don't have or that person that I'm really resenting right now, but it, it fixes our eyes on the one who is high and lifted up who's enthroned on our praises and who came down so low to be with us and to save us. And so that's what I wanna finish with now. Point three, we can praise God and be confident of rescue because of the one who praised him even while knowing that he would be abandoned. We, all these things I've been talking about with regard to praise, we cannot do in our strength. We are scared stiff. How can we? By fixing our eyes on the one who did it even while being abandoned. Um, Jesus, David's greater son, the one who came from David, um, on the night before his cross, the reason that he came for us, on the night before his cross, he was, 
he was sharing a supper, a Passover supper with his disciples. And uh, we refer to it as the Last Supper. And he didn't, he said, I won't drink again of the vine until I do it in, new in the kingdom with all of you. Until the party, the party, that, the party will start and never end. I'm not going to drink until that point. But they, they shared a supper together. And he was walking from that supper. He sent Judas out. Judas, go do what you're going to do. Go betray me. If that's what you need to do. He didn't say go betray me, but go do what you must do. Okay, he sends Judas out into the dark night. He's got the 11 there with him, all clean feet. Judas betrays him with clean feet. Jesus washed even Judas's feet. Think of how he loved him. Friend, you betray me with a kiss. He's walking from where they were in Jerusalem, from the upper room. They're leaving and they are going from there through the Kidron Valley up into one of Jesus' favorite places, um, the Mount of Olives, into that orchard so he can pray and so God the Father can begin to show him in a new way. Here's what you must do to save those that we made that have rebelled against us. You will become sin. I will turn my back on you. I will pour out my furious white hot wrath against sin justly onto you. He had, he had to begin to see that and taste that and know what he was gonna take. And, 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 and b- between that and leaving the upper room, what happens? Something that most of us d- don't notice, but he and his disciples sing some songs together. They sing some hymns. Scholars think that probably because of the situation, what was traditional at communion after that meal was that, um, after Passover rather, I should say, was that um, they, they sang the Hallel, the Hallel Psalms. Um, and those songs, uh, Hallel means, means praise in Hebrew, okay? It means praise. So they sang Psalms 113 through 118, maybe a variety of those. But what, what was Jesus doing as he was going to the worst possible place that even if we, any of us in this room, and I pray God forbid it, end up in hell forever, apart from God, not having fled to Christ for refuge, we will never know the amount of pain and suffering he endured that he was going into because he endured it for all of those all of those who would place their faith in him as, as the substitute, as the righteous substitute and savior. Um, he was walking into that, and what is he doing? What is he doing as he walks to that place, the ultimate showdown, the ultimate pain? He's praising God. He's literally singing songs of praise and trust to God in that place. Um, and what does he do on the cross? Okay, we just said God is enthroned on the praises of his people. Where does that come from? Psalm 22, verse three. Back up two verses. How does the psalm start? How does Psalm 22 start? It starts with words that Jesus utters on the cross that he's, where he says, taking David's words and, make, and fulfilling them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken, or in the Hebrew, abandoned me? This one who knew he would be abandoned and who indeed was abandoned by the Father trusted God in the midst of his suffering in the worst possible place and let praise fill his mouth. And because of him, because of that, as we fix our eyes on him and run to him for refuge, knowing that he has taken our place and done what we never could, but that in him, by faith, we receive a full inheritance. In the worst of our circumstances, we can know God loves me. He laid his life down for me. I win. God is using this for good. He's using this to make me like Christ. He's using this as the fist comes down on the water to spread the gospel far and wide through my suffering. As the seed dies in the ground, it will bear much fruit. And I will taste 
a little bit more of the sweetness of fellowship with Christ and his power, the power of his death and resurrection will go out through me. All this is true only because of Jesus. Um, we have a song, friends. Um, in Revelation, so at the end of the Bible, fast forward um, to a close, the end of the Bible, um, in Revelation 4, Revelation 4 and 5 are two of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I think I've preached on them before here. Um, but Revelation 4, 8, all of creation, the angelic host, is singing the praises of the one triune God, okay? But in this sense, Revelation 4, it's almost like he's the God who has not yet revealed himself in Christ, okay? Revelation 4, and what do they say? The angelic creatures say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Again, in Revelation 4.11, not the angels, but the saints. They cast their crowns down. That's where we get that phrase from, casting crowns. They cast their crowns down saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. But verses later, as they give God this praise, a few verses later, the, the scene shifts and John sees that the, the will of God for all of creation cannot be accomplished. All that is written inside and out in this book, it can't be accomplished because there is no one that is found worthy to accomplish it. We need a man, but we ask, only God can do it. Only man has to do it because it's man that caused all things to fall and it's man who needs to redeem all things. And so John sees this one who is the son of man, God and man come and he takes the scroll and he opens it. And John says he looks like a lamb that was slain, but he's also a lion. And what erupts from all creation, listen to this, and when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, this is Revelation 5, 8 through 9, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed or bought people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay? In Revelation 4, they give God due glory, but before Christ came, what we get is the angels say these things, and then the saints say these things. What we get when the Lamb has shown us the full character of God manifest in the person of Christ hanging on the cross for us and then risen from the dead, they sang a new song. We, friends of all people, even in the darkest places, have a reason to sing. Christians sing and ought to sing like no one else. Chained to a prison cell, we sing. Others might chant. Others might do crazy dances. Others might have meditative things going on, okay? We sing. We have a rabbi friend, uh, Justin and I, who has this great phrase. He saw Christians singing on a mission trip where it was like Jews, Muslims, and Christians. They were from Cincinnati. And this group of Christians were just praising God. And he has this awesome phrase. He said, I got religion envy. He's like, man, I got religion envy watching these people. He's like, it's like it's real. It's like they're full of this joy that I don't have. What? We have a reason to sing because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Um, we're gonna sing, I'm gonna sing in the middle of the storm. That's a, a, a melody that we're about to sing together. 
Um, let, me, let me close down with, of course, a, a quote from C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters. He says, be not deceived, Wormwood. This is Satan talking, a, a, a senior devil. Be not deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, the enemy is God, still, but still, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him, of God, seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys, or we could put in there, or still praises. And it's only because Christ did, in the face of truly being abandoned, that when we feel we are being abandoned and know that we never will be because of Jesus, can still obey, can still praise, because we know that God is committed to us to the nth degree because of Jesus. Um, And so in the middle of the storm, still we can praise.